Let's pray. Father in heaven, confront us with the power of your word tonight. We ask that you would strip away our defenses in our bold prayer for tonight is that every heart within this place would wave the white flag of surrender to Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. June 4th of this year marked the 77th anniversary of the largest military evacuation and rescue in the history of war. It's referred to as the miracle of Dunkirk. In 1939, Nazi Germany is on the rise as a global superpower. And one of the first casualties of Hitler's campaign for world world domination is Poland. The German invasion of Poland starts on September 1st, 1939. And after a brutal blitzkrieg, Poland falls. In five weeks. Great Britain and France see Germany as a clear and present danger that will lay waste throughout Western Europe, and they were right because in May 1940, the Nazi forces redeploy and march towards France for a decisive battle for the West. Great Britain knows that if France falls, they're next on Hitler's hit list. And so Britain sends over 200,000 soldiers to fight alongside the French and to try to repel that Nazi invasion, that threat. On May 10th, 1940, Nations clash in all-out war as Western Europe hangs in the balance. After launching a vicious shock-and-awe campaign, the Nazi war machine cuts through the Netherlands. They devastate Belgium, and then somehow the German army outmaneuvers and surrounds and pushes the Allied forces up along the northern coast of France right near the city and the port of Dunkirk. If you can envision over 350,000 Allied forces, these soldiers, stranded and trapped and at the mercy of the enemy, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, this is the last stand. The beach at Dunkirk was a very brutal and a hostile place. There is a scorching wind that blows along the shoreline and it blisters the faces and the hands of the soldiers because the beach is literally burning because of German air raids. In some places, it's like an inferno that can't be extinguished. The stench of death hangs in the air The soldiers are exhausted, thirsty, hungry, injured. Their back 
is to the ocean and on land, everywhere they look, their line of sight is occupied by a ruthless enemy who is sworn to destroy them. And then the question comes and it rings in their minds over and over again, will I be killed or captured? What a place to be, waiting to die. The French prime minister placed an urgent call to Britain's high command and his message was clear and simple. The war is lost. This is the end. Great Britain's newly selected prime minister, Winston Churchill, addressed Parliament and he called the events in France a colossal military disaster. Britain sent between 200 and 300,000 soldiers and that represented the majority of their ground forces. And this happens. Winston Churchill said that the whole root and core and brain of the British army is stranded at Dunkirk and they are likely to perish. And then someone said it. It's time for a rescue. Let's bring these soldiers home. But the logistics of planning a rescue of that size and scope seemed impossible. And so a nationwide call went out through Britain for the nation to come together and to collaborate and participate in this rescue. On May 26, 1940, the soldiers at Dunkirk looked across the ocean and they saw cruisers and destroyers coming from the Royal Navy. Some of these ships were over 500 feet long and they weighed over 9,000 tons. <clears throat> but then, to the soldiers, shock and surprise, they saw civilian fishing boats and tugboats and yachts and paddle streamers, barges and cargo ships, and even a fireboat from London's fire brigade. These were the ships of safety that were coming to take the soldiers home. The smallest boat in this rescue was a 14-foot-long open-top fishing boat. One of the yachts was helmed by a man named Charles Lightoller. 28 years earlier, he served as second officer aboard the Titanic. And now he's there, helping rescue the stranded soldiers. As the soldiers boarded the boats, that's when danger escalated to the next level. As these ships pulled away from the shore of Dunkirk, you can imagine from the air, under the ocean, and from every side, there were bullets, bombs, and torpedoes heading in every direction, targeting these rescue ships. The soldiers must have felt so vulnerable, so defenseless, and they understood. The journey home is not for the faint of heart. 
The water was rough. And there was danger in every direction. Between May 26th and June 4th, over 800 vessels participated within this rescue operation. Almost 340,000 soldiers were saved, spanning the French, the British, and the Belgian armies. And as these rescue ships arrived home, Churchill made the declaration that this rescue operation at Dunkirk was a miracle of deliverance. And that's a tremendous phrase because it describes the true essence of what Eastern Camp 2017 is all about. Some of you are stranded in a very desolate place. And you're captive to a very brutal and a hostile wasteland. And it's simply called sin. And we heard it throughout this week. You don't have to stay there. The good news is that you can choose to be rescued. You can leave that charred, burnt-out beach because the ships of safety are here for you. It's a vessel called faith, and it departs for the shores of heaven tonight. Throughout this week, rescue operations have been taking place. And some of you said yes to Christ. And you confessed your need for deliverance. And because of that, you boarded the ship. You made a start. You made a commitment. You're heading in the right direction. And as you begin your journey home, and as you pull away from that smoldering shore, there's an urgent message from the captain. And it's this. The journey home is not for the faint of heart. Because there's rough waters ahead. When you leave camp, the storms of life will pound against your ship of faith. Sooner or later, maybe when you least expect it, the waves will roar and crash in all around you. The wind will blow. It'll rage more intense than ever. And your ship will be tempest-driven because a journey home is not a luxurious cruise through the tropics. It's not a picnic at the lake. Before you reach the safe harbor of heaven, there are dangers to confront. There is resistance to push through and there are storms to ride out. And so, you know the weather forecast. You know what to expect. But despite that, you have the God-given right to take courage and take heart because God himself gives you the assurance that you can take it and you can make it because his power makes all the difference in that journey home. And to reinforce that reality... I'd like to examine the story of a father and a son who were pelted by the storms of life. 
In fact, they lived right in the middle of the eye of the storm. And even a group of disciples looked at their situation and said, you can't push through a struggle that intense. You can't weather a storm that strong. It can't be done. And yet, it's a story of determination, resilience, and the power of grace. And along the way, these disciples learn the lesson of a lifetime. Let's find out more. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 17, beginning with verse 14. First, the context. Peter, James, and John witnessed something they will never forget. The image is etched in their minds in a vivid and dramatic way. On a mountaintop in Galilee, they saw a preview of the second coming of Jesus Christ. In a moment of time, Christ's body transforms from the weakness and the frailty of human flesh into the power and the brilliance of God's glory. And in that moment for them, it must have felt like the atmosphere of heaven. It felt so right. But the next day, Christ, Peter, James, and John come down from the mountaintop and they step into an atmosphere of controversy and tragedy. And it begins like this in verse number 14. And when they were come to the multitude, there is a lot of emotion and compassion within this multitude because it's possible that the majority of this crowd came in support of a single person and we meet him in verse number 14. There came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. This moment becomes a very dramatic scene because by kneeling, this person is expressing at least two things. Number one, we see reverence, respect, humility, sincerity. We see worship. And number two, this posture is imploring and begging for mercy. He implies, I am willing to make myself vulnerable to your graciousness and your willingness to do something no one else can. Have you ever heard someone beg and plead in their agony and distress? I have. I did a little bit of research into the pressure-filled lives of first responders. And there was a lot of audio of 911 phone calls. And if you would hear what I heard, it takes your breath away. It cuts your heart. The desperation, the fear, it comes right through. And that's exactly what this was. This was a 911 call straight to the heart of Christ. And the call sounds like this in verse number 15. Lord, have mercy 
on my son. He implies, please demonstrate compassion. And what the crowd hears next sends a chill through each and every person. Because this is what life is like. This is a snapshot of what misery is like as we begin this emotional journey with this father. He says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic. Interesting word. It actually means moonstruck. It's a word that expresses the belief that some people have that the movement of the moon can cause people's behavior to change and to become erratic and explosive. That's at least the origin of the word. But what it connotates here is to be completely out of control. This response is a mixture of panic and trauma. And when those emotions ignite, it creates a violent explosion of energy, and it cannot be restrained. And that's exactly what happens here. The real diagnosis behind this misery is that this young man was demon-possessed. And because of that, in Mark chapter 9, verses 17 and 18, he can't speak. He can't hear. And the Bible says that this demon tears at him. That's a very violent word. And what that would mean is to strike and to shatter something into a thousand pieces. And we see this young man. Foam comes down from his mouth because of violent seizures. The convulsions literally contort and twist his body. He gnashes his teeth because the pain and the misery and the torture is unbearable. And then the father says it. Mark chapter 9, verse number 18. He pines away. His body is literally withering away. The meaning would be it's shriveling up. It's drying up. This is the highest level of misery and pain. And the father summarizes it this way. For he is lunatic and sore vexed. Now the word vexed is an all-encompassing word. And it would mean to suffer emotionally, physically, mentally, in every way possible. On the pain scale, this is a 10. This is extreme. This is off the charts. And it gets worse. The Bible says in verse number 15, For oftentimes he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. The end goal of this demon is to murder this young man either by burning him or drowning him. And it's like this all the time. It never stops. And it's been like this ever since he was a little child. But he's still fighting for life. Instinctively, he wants to live and we see an image of a thin, skeleton-like partially burned body of this young man tightly holding the hand of his father and maybe hoping that something will be different today. 
Can you identify at some level with this pain and with this desperation? You would do anything. You would go anywhere. You would spare no expense to bring relief and healing to your only son. And that's exactly what this father did. In verse number 16, he said, And I brought him to thy disciples. Now this is where the story turns around. This is where the gloom dissipates. This is where the hope comes in. This is where it gets better. Why did he take him to Christ's disciples? He did it because the headlines across Galilee, the headlines across every place were proclaiming that the power of God is here. It's life-changing, it's personal, and it's available. And so he did it. He brought his son to the right place. Let's see what happened. In verse number 16, and they could not cure him. What? We read that right, and they could not cure him. No one saw that coming. The Bible says in Mark chapter 9, verse 14, the scribes were there, and you can imagine they're loving this, and they're lurking in the background. And they're confronting Christ's disciples and they're saying, I told you this wouldn't work. I knew it. Why are you giving false hope? Why are you subjecting this family to a fantasy? How low can you go? And these nine disciples are cut deep. And then in verse number 17, the shocking response from our Lord. No one saw this coming. In verse number 17, then answered, then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Now there is a sense of frustration in Christ's voice. But who is he speaking to? And I guess the easy target would be, it's the disciples, it's these nine, right? But the truth is, is that everyone is having a crisis of belief. Mark chapter 9 verse 24 says that this father, his faith was damaged and he was wrestling with unbelief. The scribes were faithless and they were gloating. These nine disciples became disillusioned and they started to doubt. This crowd was becoming more skeptical by the moment. The statement indicts everybody. It's for everyone. Faithless and perverse. These words go hand in hand. We know what faithless means. The word perverse would describe something that is distorted, something that's twisted. And the point here is that whenever anyone has distrust in the power of God, the natural byproduct of that unbelief 
is to have a distorted view of what's possible in life. It's to have a twisted perspective of the reality and the power of truth. And that's the issue here. That's the point. In verse number 17, Christ raises two rhetorical questions and they both come together to make a powerful point. First, question number one, how long shall I be with you? He implies my departure is coming and you are called to be a light, to reflect hope and healing and yet somehow you're living under a bushel. You're covering up the light. You're putting a dark cloak around hope. How do you do that? Question number two. How long shall I suffer you? He implies how much patience is required before you finally choose to trust in the power of God. And the whole point, the implication is that time is going by, it's passing by, and you're not getting it. You're missing the point. You're not understanding it. How long is it going to take you? Now, does this sound harsh? Is this severe? Of course it is. And the reason Christ said it is because of his compassion for this young man. In Christ's view, his disciples were sent as liberators that would free the captives. And they come across this vulnerable and tortured young man. And at some point, and for some reason, these nine disciples said, he's too far gone. He's beyond our hope. And Christ says, that's a shame. Why would you say that? No one is beyond hope. You should know better. Shame on you. This is a stern rebuke. And now for the real change in verse number 18. And Jesus rebuked the devil... And he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. This is what happens when you come face to face with the power of God through faith. He was cured. What that would imply is that he was relieved, and he finally received rest. He became a new man that day. And I know the father was so glad that he never gave up. Because it would have been so easy to give up when the disciples said, it can't be done. It would have been so easy to give up when the scribes said, I told you so. But through his persistence, he pushed through the crowd and he met Jesus face to face. And he said, it was worth it all. 
It was worth every struggle, every tear. It was worth everything to finally be in this place of victory. And he embraced it. And now for the best part. Because of the Father's example of persistence, the Bible says in Luke chapter 9, verse 43, that all the people were astonished at the majesty of God's power because of his example, because of his persistence. And this crowd of skeptics becomes a choir of praise. What a moment. What a celebration. Incredible scene. And now for the life lesson. In verse number 19, then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could not we cast him out? I love this. These disciples were bothered that they wrote this young man off. They were frustrated that they couldn't help him. And they thought, I'm not fulfilling my potential in Christ. And I want to know why. I want to learn from my mistakes. I want to understand my shortcomings. I want to come face to face. I want to confront the person that I've become. What a request. When was the last time you asked why? Maybe it sounded something like this. Why am I barely getting by in life? Why am I not satisfied with the blessings that I have? Why am I a continual victim of sin? Why do I sit in that mire, that, that pit, and I can't climb out? Why is that, God? Be warned. When you ask him why, he will bring you face to face with yourself. And sometimes we don't like to see that other person. And what we do is we dress him up and we put disguises and facades and we cover him up. But when you ask why, God strips all that away and you finally see who you really are. It's not pleasant. Sometimes it hurts. But the best thing is that God gives you the grace to be able to point to that person and to say, God, that's me. I'm not blaming anyone else. I'm not a victim of someone else's mistakes. I'm not pointing the finger at anyone else. God, I'm here, and it's my responsibility. It's me. And then God gives you the power to conform into the image of his only son. We are challenged tonight to ask why. I dare you 
to ask why. What was the issue? What kind of answer did Christ give them? Verse number 20. And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. How be it, this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. What was the issue? Your faith didn't go the distance. I know these nine disciples tried to help this young man, and they had the faith to engage him and to start. And maybe it happened something like this. Maybe they said, in the name of Jesus, come out of him, and nothing happened. And then they said it again. Nothing happened. One more time, three times they said it, and nothing happened. And they panicked. And they stopped. And they bailed. Their faith only went so far, and when it hit the wall of resistance, it died. You know this wall. You've seen it up close. Sometimes it casts a dark shadow across your life. It's a thick wall, and it's high. In the length, it just seems to go on as far as you can see. And so there's no way to go around it, and even though you can't climb it, the top of it is laced with barbed wire. And it goes down as far as you can see. Every wall needs a name, I guess. There's nothing fancy about this wall. It doesn't have letters that light up. It just has one big rusty sign, and it's attached all the way up there in capital letters. Very simply, it reads, Resistance. This is the wall of resistance in your life. And you visit this wall a lot. And you approach it, and you just stand there looking up. This wall intimidates you. There's something about this wall. It scares you. Sometimes you're frozen in fear and then you walk away. But you always come back. You always come back to the wall because there's something beyond this wall that you crave. I know what it is. It's not a secret. It's victory, revival, renewal, restoration. It's peace and joy. And you want those things. But it's so frustrating that they're on the other side of the wall. And sometimes when you dig up enough courage, you run at that wall and you hit it. 
You hit it with your fist and you use your own strength and your skill and you keep hitting it. And you notice your hands are scraping up. But you want to get through. And so you keep hitting that wall and you notice there's there's blood on that wall. Blood on your hands. And it hurts to keep hitting that wall. You can't hit it anymore. And so then you step away just for a moment. And you come back with a sledgehammer. And it has the words human logic written all over it. And you grab hold of that handle. And you walk up to the middle of that wall. And you wind up and you just hit the wall. And you do it again and again until you can't swing that hammer anymore. And finally, the dust settles. And all the blood and the sweat and the tears that are just caked all over your face, you look up to see if you made some progress. But that menacing wall is still there. Even worse, you didn't even make a scratch. You can actually see your reflection in that wall. That's how good it looks. And then you bow your head. So repulsed, so disappointed, and you walk away. And you decide to settle that where I need to live is within the confines of that wall. And every now and then, when you think about it, you got to keep reminding yourself why you're there. You got to keep reminding yourself, and you simply say, My wall won't fall. Easy to remember, it's catchy, and you just repeat it. Because you're justified to be where you're at because you can't get through. How many people here tonight can say, my wall won't fall? And maybe you have the bloody knuckles to prove it. You're tired. You're exhausted. But the point in verses 20 and 21 is that You're doing it wrong. You need to engage resistance with the power of persistent prayer and the discipline of fasting. And if you avail yourself to that resource, then you can keep fighting and keep pushing and keep believing and keep God's promise in view because it's just a matter of time until you break through and embrace the victory that's on the other side of the wall. The point in verses 20 and 21 is that the power of prayer and fasting becomes the fuel that enables your faith to go the distance and to break through the wall of resistance that will be there. And maybe you say, I've done that. The wall came down, and I remember exactly where I was. And when the dust settled, I made my way. But I never expected another wall. 
You see, this one's bigger. It's still resistance. Same name, bigger wall. And as you make your way to this new wall, the Bible says that you need to understand as you approach this wall that your faith was not meant to stay the size of a mustard seed. It starts that way, but it needs to grow. And by exercising the power of persistence, your faith develops to a point where nothing is impossible. Nothing. How about that? The possibilities are endless for you. You can be a barrier breaker. Nothing in your way. But you got to exercise that persistence, right? And the question for us tonight, are you willing to engage resistance with determination and intensity? Maybe you say, this persistent prayer stuff, it just sounds exhausting. I got another way. I got something else that maybe I can even sell you on. Instead of availing myself to the power of persistent prayer, I actually choose to take the power of procrastination. You see, this is great because you can look at all the issues in your life and they stack all around you. And you know how this works. All you got to do is nothing. And then at, at some point, time will fix everything. How does that sound? I wouldn't pay a penny for that philosophy. And I fear that there are people maybe here tonight who are investing their entire spiritual life on that kind of a philosophy. I can just sit back and do nothing and magically, somehow, in a fairy tale world, time will just fix everything. How's that worked out so far? Because we're really good at waiting. Are the issues any less? Of course not. And so you say, you're right, that was a bad one. We'll cross that one off. But I got another one for you. This one might just pique your interest. It's called the power of presumption. And see, God's involved in this one. That's why it's a whole lot better. It's not just time. And the way this works is that you don't have to worry about choosing the right things. You don't have to worry about the urgency of the moment because you can just live life your way. And of course God's watching. Of course he is. And you can just go out and no matter where you end up, sooner or later, God will just hit that reset button and you'll just end up right where he wants you to be. How about that? Now show me a verse for that one. I don't think you can. 
procrastination and presumption only have the power to destroy opportunity. That's it. That's not your way out. Maybe by now you know that persistent prayer is the mechanism that propels your ship of faith. Maybe you say, look, we're talking about persistent prayer. What is persistent prayer? Is it just some mechanical, continual routine where we just check the box each day? It's not it. It's not it at all. In fact, the Father showed us exactly what persistent prayer is all about. It is making yourself vulnerable to the grace of God. It's being man enough and woman enough to say, God, I'm lost. I don't know how to find my way back. It's an honest prayer. It's making that 911 call to the heart of God, an urgent call at any time. That's what it means to have persistent prayer. Basically, it's to develop and build and nurture your relationship with God. And you do that every day. And you connect with Him and you reach out to Him. And that's what it means to have persistent prayer in your life. You're in your ship of faith tonight. And as you're making a way, there's some water that's spraying inside your ship. And I can even see you starting to grip the edges of the boat. I guess I should have told you something to begin just before you got into that vessel of faith. Maybe you didn't notice it, but there's some markings off to the side outside the ship. And those markings actually make all the difference. You should know about them. Today, we actually call those the Plimsoll mark. Samuel Plimsoll was a member of the British Parliament in the late 1880s. And he was concerned about the loss of ship and crew at sea. And they determined that these tragedies were taking place because of overloading extra cargo on that ship. And so he helped develop the standard of putting some marks on these ships that would indicate maximum load. And the marks would be different depending on ship, depending on their make and model, right? It's not the same ship, different marks. And the good news for you is as you make your way, you will never, ever encounter a wave that's too big not to cut through. You will never, ever feel the surge of wind that you can't get through, ever, because God knows your limit. And the enemy sits back and says, that's not fair. Of course it's not. And that's the point. You have a father 
who you are going home to. And he's guiding you along the way. You see, as long as you keep focused on that shore, as long as you keep your eyes on Jesus, you'll never have a shipwreck. You never have to worry about tipping over, ever. You will, your ship will be tempest-driven. It'll be tossed back and forth, but you'll never have a shipwreck. For those of you who boarded the boat and you're on your way, I want to tell you that we're praying for you. We are so happy for you. We are cheering for you. And we're in this with you. You're not alone. You'll have struggles We'll cry with you. You'll have victory. We'll rejoice with you. And I know sooner or later, someday, we will see each other on that shore. Before we leave tonight, I feel compelled to take another glance at that smoldering wasteland because I still see some of you there tonight. You're just standing there. And I think through the smoke and through the ash, I can even see some born-again believers. You're, you're just standing in that wasteland of sin. And I know, brother and sister, you probably don't even remember how you got there because life gets hard. Life can get messy. It got confusing and for some reason you lost your way. And you're there. But it doesn't make any sense to stay because the flames are starting to rise and they're coming closer. You may not see them, but it's true. And those ships of safety are still there for you. They even have your name on them, just for you. And so, come back home. Your vessel of faith is waiting for you because you don't have to stay where you're at. And the Father is waiting for you to come home. And he calls you tonight, come home. Amen. Let's kneel and pray. Father, we have a 911 emergency. Father, we have so many people that are drowning. Lord, we need your help. They're drowning in sin. 
Father, we're begging you. Like the Father. Like the Father of that Son to help. Father, we believe, but help our unbelief. Father, we're, we're staggering against that wall of resistance. And we're not being persistent. And so, Lord, we pray for your help. Lord, we pray desperately for those that are lost. Father, we pray that you'd give them the courage, that you'd give them the courage to cry out for help, to beg for your help, to seek you. Lord, we need your help too. We've compromised. We've presumed. We've given up. We've settled. Our lives show it. Lord, work and give us the faith to join you without compromise. Give us the courage to recommit or commit for the very first time and follow you. You are an awesome God. And just give us the courage to say, I choose Jesus tonight for the rest of our lives. We pray it in our Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.